From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up. Nobody thought this was a good idea. A residual force of 2,500 troops is not a whole lot of a footprint compared to where we have troops elsewhere to provide stability uh, in the region. And I, I'm, I'm concerned with this complete decision uh, to pull out that it's, um, it's not going to have a good ending to it. That was Congressman Michael McCall, the ranking member on the House Foreign Affairs Committee on Fox News Sunday, discussing the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Will this create a vacuum that will be filled by terrorists? We'll talk about it with Congresswoman Lisa McLean, a member of the House Armed Services Committee. And on Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to take the case of Baronel Stutzman, the Washington state florist that has been made a target by the state's attorney general. Why? Because she said her Christian faith would not allow her to make flower arrangements for same-sex weddings. Now she is facing financial ruin. Why did the court decline the case, and what does it mean for religious freedom going forward? We'll talk with Kristen Wagner, General Counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom. And while the high court refusal, while the refusal to act in Baronell's case was inexplicable, the court did issue an opinion in the case out of California that is worth celebrating. The court slapped down a policy put in place by Vice President Harris when she was California's Attorney General, John Birch. Senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom is here to explain that case and the significance of that decision. And finally, a society that has wrestled with the sins of its past and emerged with an understanding that racial and social justice is education justice. That was Becky Pringle, the president of the NEA at last week's gathering of the National Education Association. The NEA adopted a measure last week that sets the stage, I believe, for a showdown between the education mafia, the NEA, and parents. After they adopted a vote critical race theory in 14,000 local school districts across America, and they pledged to oppose any attempts by elected officials to ban it from K-12 through classrooms. We'll discuss it with Meg Kilgannon, FRC Senior Fellow for Education Studies. Later on Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on the free speech platform of Gab, it's at Tony underscore Perkins. Let me encourage you to download the Stand Firm app. That way you can keep up with Washington Watch no matter where you are uh, in the world, actually. Um, It not only brings you Washington Watch every evening, 5 p.m. Eastern time, but also provides action items so that you can be involved be knowledgeable, and know exactly where to target your activity. So download the Stand Firm app. Go to the App Store. It is the Stand Firm app. All right. Again, the website, TonyPerkins.com, lots of resources there for you. Over the weekend, more than 300 Afghan military personnel crossed from Afghanistan's Badashan province into Tajikistan, fleeing from Taliban fighters that advanced toward the border. Now, since President Biden announced back in April that all American troops will be withdrawn from Afghanistan by September the 11th, district after district has fallen to the Taliban. In the past few days alone, the Taliban has seized more than 30 districts. Now, according to reports, the Taliban now controls roughly a third of all 
421 districts and district centers in Afghanistan. Now, did the Biden administration not see this coming? Well, last week, the president uh, on the second after delivering remarks on the June jobs report was asked a question about this. Play clip four. I'm not going to answer any more questions on Afghanistan. Look, Fourth of July. I'm concerned that you guys are asking me questions that I'll answer next week. But I'm, this is the holiday weekend. I'm going to celebrate it. There's great things happening. So the president sidestepped the question, refusing to talk about the effects of uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Again, on Sunday, on Fox News Sunday, Foreign Affairs Committee uh, Republican leader, Congressman McCall uh, had this to say about the withdrawal. Clip two, please. You know, uh, we're, we're going dark in Afghanistan, and there are going to be consequences long term to this. And at the end of the day, Mike, when we fully withdraw, mm-hmm. the devastation and, and the, the killings and women, humanitarian crisis, fleeing across the border in Pakistan, President Biden's going to own these ugly images. The withdrawal will leave a huge vacuum for uh, the Afghan military that has been strongly supported by the U.S. This opens the door for ISIS, for the Taliban uh, to come back and to reestablish control. As, As I mentioned, several of these districts already falling to the Taliban after the announcement that the United States was going to be withdrawing from this area. Uh, this, um, you know, going back to what uh, Congressman uh, McCall had to say, is that this was not a huge military force. Uh, we, we had roughly about 2,500 uh, members of the military there. In America, because of what is behind our military, uh, has a stabilizing force that far exceeds uh, really its present capacity. For instance, you've got 2,500 Well, they know there's a lot more behind that 2,500 force and that if something happens, uh, there will be those there to to back them up. That has um, a a, a tremendous stabilizing effect. And the withdrawal prematurely from this region uh, could result in America having to return uh, to this uh, to this region of the world. Uh, prematurely. Uh, we're going to, uh, do, do we have our guest? All right. Uh, we're now going to go to uh, Congresswoman Lisa McLean. She is a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Congresswoman, welcome back to Washington Watch. Well, thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm doing just fine. We we played a, a just a moment ago, played a clip of uh, one of your colleagues, Congressman Michael McCall, over the weekend talking uh, about how Uh, about uh, President Biden was going to own this because of the negative consequences that were going to come from the premature withdrawal from Afghanistan. Your thoughts? Well, I think Michael McCall is is spot on. I mean, I'm assuming that when he talks about the withdrawal and the Taliban taking over within the next six months, I mean, let's face it, Biden's own military leadership advised against the withdrawal. Um, and they warned of the Taliban taking over in six months. So, you know, they've already taken over a third of the region, and we're not even out of Afghanistan yet. 
What do you think is going to happen when we completely withdraw? We're in trouble, and that region is in trouble. Now, on Friday, the um, U.S. withdrew, vacated the uh, Bagram Air Base, uh, some 40 miles north of uh, Kabul, and the, the, the this was the biggest military installation during that uh, two-decade-long war. Uh, this is ahead of schedule. The president said he wanted them out by September the 11th. In, in your opinion, is this going to create a vacuum that the terrorists are going to fill? Absolutely, it's going to create a vacuum, um, and it already is creating a vacuum. Um, and this is a real, real danger. And then you take a look at once the Taliban gets a hold of that region and a firm hold of that region, we already can predict what's going to happen. You know, this is going to be another humanitarian crisis. This is going to be another. We're going to deal, be dealing with with refugees, and it's it's going to be it's going to be a real mess, not only for that region, but for us as well, because people are going to look at us because we are the ones that withdrew from it, not the fact that we withdrew from it, but we withdrew from it without a plan of transition or without a, tra- a, tra- a peaceful transition of power. Um, it's, not a good, it's not a good play that we're running right now. Now, Congresswoman uh, McLean, the U.S. intelligence assessment warns that the Afghan government could fall to the Taliban within six months of the U.S. departures. Now, some Taliban officials think it's going to happen even more quickly. Do you think that the Biden administration will rethink this withdrawal or is this set in stone? You know, it's hard for me to tell what the Biden administration is going to do, because, quite frankly, they 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 flip flop. Um, You know, look at what happened with infrastructure recently. My hope is that they actually take a look and they listen to their own military uh, leadership and and we go in with a plan or we rethink our exit strategy. Um, I mean, six months is the best case scenario. But it's already happening now. If we don't rethink this strategy, it, it's, we have some dire consequences ahead of us, and it is going to lay at this administration's feet. Now, do you think the United States will be back there, uh, that we'll be forced to go back after the implosion takes place? Unfortunately, I think we will be forced to go back there. You know, I, I don't know who else would stand up um, to uh, the yeah. plate. Yeah, can you hear me? Uh, yeah. Yep. Can you hear me? Yep. Go right ahead. Yep, I can hear you. I said absolutely I think we'll be forced to go back there. Um, I don't know who else would stand up um, to, to the task. And I, I think whether it's six months, whether it's three months, or one, whether it's a year, we're going to be back there. And we're going to be back there not because just only of Afghanistan. But once the Taliban takes hold, this is not just a regional threat. This is a worldwide threat. I mean, look, at we haven't dealt with terrorist organizations uh, under the last administration. We had three peace deals going on. Now what are we, we doing? We're reversing all of those policies, and, and we're getting back, and we're letting the Taliban take hold again. We can't let that happen. I mean, this would be very similar to what happened in the Obama-Biden administration. 
uh, pulling out of uh, Iraq early, and we had to go back to, uh, to, to, to Iraq as well. And it costs us more money to do that, as opposed to let's pause, let's get a good exit strategy, let's make sure, like President Trump was actually doing with the Taliban and, and the Afghan government, let's actually get a peace and power-sharing agreement in place to make sure that that region is secure before we exit. One final question for you, Congresswoman uh, McLean. Uh, also in his interview, uh, Michael McCall said that he believed Biden was moving ahead with a total withdrawal for political reasons. Is this to appease his, uh, you know, the, the left wing base of their party? There seems to be a lot of appeasement going on right now to the left wing. But what we have to remember is that is just a small faction of what America stands for. Um, I, I actually think he is trying to appease them, yeah. And, and as you said, that would be a very costly appeasement. Congresswoman Lisa McLean, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Great to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Have a nice day. All right, you too. All right, coming up next, we'll take a look at uh, some of the announcements made last week by the Supreme Court, starting with the case of Baronel Stutzman, uh, the Supreme Court refusing to take the case of this uh, grandmother, this florist in Washington State. We'll be talking about that next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. A lot more to come. When it comes to reading the Bible, sometimes it can be difficult to know where to start or to understand how to apply scripture to everyday life. There are also those passages that leave people scratching their heads, wondering what some things even mean and what they're supposed to make of it. We all know that scripture is divinely inspired and given by God, and it's useful to us as God uses it to prepare and equip us to do good work for his kingdom, to grow us and to bring us closer to him. God's Word is powerful, but it shouldn't intimidate you. That's why Family Research Council offers the Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. It's a two-year plan that helps you read the Bible daily so you can stay grounded in God's truth, navigate our culture from a biblical worldview, and grow closer to God. This plan will help you to practice the discipline of reading Scripture every day so you can be transformed by God's Word. Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org slash Bible. God is the author of life and has created man in His image. Therefore, we must respect the inherent dignity of every human life from conception until natural death. That is why Family Research Council works to pass legislation that highlights this principle, including laws that protect the unborn. To keep you informed on this issue, FRC has created online maps that illustrate progress in each state on key pro-life laws. That way, you can know if your state legislators are working to protect unborn babies. The pro-life laws FRC tracks at the state level include those addressing late-term abortions, fetal dignity, defunding abortion businesses, and providing medical care for babies born alive after an attempted abortion. See where your state stands on pro-life abortion. Check out our pro-life maps at frc.org slash pro-life maps. 
Most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, but current research shows that only 6% actually have one. This means that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. Increasingly, we see the disastrous effects of a culture that has rebelled against the truth of God's Word. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. This center is an exciting new ministry created to help Christians develop and live by a biblical worldview, to understand why scriptures must be authoritative, and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview provide research and resources to help prepare believers to give a biblical answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access the center's free resources at frc.org slash worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Over the years, we've tracked the case of Baronel Stutzman. She is a uh, grandmother in Washington State, a florist. Uh, this case has traveled up to the Supreme Court and back again. And just this past Friday, before the long weekend, the court declined to hear her case dealing a blow to this grandmother and to her future. A very surprising announcement considering President Trump confirmed three justices to the court who were who we were told were constitutionalists. Now, joining me now to discuss this case is Kristen Wagner, General Counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom. She also handled Baronell's case since the very beginning, many years ago. Kristen, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. All right, give our, our listeners a quick refresher on this case because it's been out there a long time and we talk about these things and we assume everybody knows the facts. So just kind of lay out the facts here for us, please. Sure. Well, within about a year's period, uh, there were a number of same-sex couples that went in and requested different arrangements, either floral arrangements in Baronell's case or a custom cake in Jack Phillips' case uh, between that 2012-2013 period. And Baronell was one of those who were targeted. Uh, she had served a customer for nearly a decade. Um, she knew that the customer identified as gay. She designed custom arrangements for he and his partner to celebrate different uh, holidays and things like that. But when Washington redefined marriage, she was asked to do custom design arrangements for the same-sex wedding ceremony, and she politely took Rob, the customer, into the corner of the shop, held his hand, and said, I'm sorry, I can't do your wedding because of my relationship with Jesus Christ, and she referred him to three other florists. They talked about his wedding and whether his mom would walk him down the aisle. They hugged, and Rob left, and Baronel thought that that was the end of the story until the attorney general decided to sue her personally and corporately. And as we know from the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the same thing happened to Jack Phillips. So those case, cases moved through the justice system um, together. Now, is this the end of the road for Baronel in her case? It is. Um, it was a it was a deeply disappointing day. Uh, if you know Baronel. Uh, you know that this was a grave injustice. She yes. has served 
people faithfully. She served Rob faithfully. She considered him a friend. And this was really about one event. She'd done dozens of arrangements, but declined one event. And in response, without an initial complaint from the couple, the attorney general sought to collect not only from her business, but to ruin her personally, suing her in her personal capacity. So you mentioned the case of Jack Phillips out of Colorado, the baker. She got the baker and the florist. What are the differences in these two cases? Why did they turn out differently? Well, first of all, Jack Phillips' case went to the U.S. Supreme Court and got there before Baron L. Stutzman's case did. But uh, shortly after that, we asked the court to hear Baron L. Stutzman's case as well. We won, thankfully, Jack Phillips' case, and I had the privilege to argue that. And the court based the decision on the religious hostility that Colorado had against Jack Phillips. Um, it didn't reach the free speech arguments because it didn't need to. So Jack won his case, and then the Washington Supreme Court court's decision in Baronell's case was wiped out by the U.S. Supreme Court case. So Baronell, the first time she went to the U.S. Supreme Court, she essentially won her case. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, Washington, you got it wrong. You need to rethink this. It went back down to the Washington Supreme Court, and they basically cut and pasted their original decision into the second decision, and that's the decision that they declined, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear. So it is the end of the road for Baronell. It's a grievous injustice. It's deeply disappointing, and it's honestly hard to wrap your mind around um, how and why the U.S. Supreme Court didn't give her justice in some way. There were options. So, so Kristen, does this underscore the cultural divide that is in our country where some states protect religious freedom while other states essentially persecute it? I think it does. It's important to remember that this case is focused on Washington state and a denial to hear a case by the U.S. Supreme Court does not make new law. What it means is that Baronell is denied justice in Washington. But we have been able to prevail in similar cases in other jurisdictions. The Arizona Supreme Court ruled the opposite of the way that the Washington Supreme Court has done, and they've protected freedom. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals has protected freedom. And we expect that a decision will come out of the Tenth Circuit in Colorado on a similar issue shortly. So there will be a circuit split, and the court will need to address that split as we're seeing the more leftist states essentially make the justice system an arm of cancel culture. Which is why so many people are leaving these states and moving to states that ref- that uh, protect and respect freedom. In California, losing a congressional seat because after the census count. Uh, North Carolina gaining one uh, because they, ref- they uh, protect religious freedom. So people are kind of voting with their feet when it comes to these fundamental freedoms. Well, I hope that's the case. I hope that they're simply not transporting, not liking the results in their states and then uh, going to continue to have progressive views in these new states. Because what we know is that the principle that's at stake here protects all Americans. It doesn't matter whether you're on the left or the right, Democrat or Republican. The right to be able to express ourselves, to have freedom of speech, the right to be able to live consistent with our convictions is one that all humans should enjoy. And it's not one that the government gives us. It's something that God gives us, and it's constitutionally guaranteed. And, and Kristen, final question, as you pointed out. Uh, because of a circuit split, most probable this is going to la- this question will land before the court once again. And at some point in time, they're going to have to address it. 
I can guarantee you that this question will continue to come before the U.S. Supreme Court. It has to be addressed. And that if it doesn't address it, I truly fear for the future of the nation. You can't have a pluralistic, free republic, a durable nation, if you don't have the fundamental freedom to speak or not speak and the right to practice your faith. Well, Kristen Wagner, I want to thank you for coming on today, but uh, also want to thank you for your work that you've done on behalf of religious freedom and all of our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom. We're grateful that you're there doing the work that you do. Well, it's our privilege to get to partner with you and Family Research Council as well. All right. Have a great day. Well, we're going to continue talking with Alliance Defending Freedom. One of Kristen's uh, colleagues is going to be joining us next to talk about a victory that they had at the Supreme Court. They're before the Supreme Court a whole lot, and they're defending freedom. And uh, next, we talk with John Birch, Senior Counsel and Vice President of Appellate Advocacy at Alliance Defending Freedom, about a victory out of California. That's next. Don't go away. Are you looking for a go-to platform where you can get relevant commentary on the cultural issues of the day from a biblical perspective? Today, it can be hard to find this in light of media censorship of conservative and Christian voices. Here at Family Research Council, we believe that every American has a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. And we think it's important for you to have access to these stories. To get the facts and stories the left doesn't want you reading, head over to frc.org slash blog to check out our newest blog posts. We cover the issues you care about, all written by our experts in policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview. Our experts unpack the topics that other media platforms won't, like current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the increasingly radical shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, go to frc.org slash blog. We're seeing more and more cases of censorship and the canceling of many conservatives and Christians by big tech companies. To combat this, Family Research Council has chosen to be proactive before big tech tries to censor or cancel us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom, even if big tech tries to silence us. It's easy. You just sign up for the text alerts by texting STAND to 67742, and you'll get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and FRC will keep you looped in on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll get information on our upcoming events and programs. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for faith, family, and freedom, and keep you connected with the like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. I'm Tony Perkins, and you're listening to Washington Watch, the website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, we're going to be joined by another one of the outstanding attorneys from Alliance Defending Freedom. He's Senior Counsel and Vice President of Appellate Advocacy with Alliance Defending Freedom, John Birch. John, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Uh, we were just talking with Kristen Wagner uh, about uh, another case that was uh, announced on Friday or the decision not to take the case of uh, Baronel Stutzman. 
that was disappointing. But uh, on Thursday, I believe it was, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a six to three ruling against a California requirement that was put in place, a rule put in place by the attorney general, uh, who at the time happened to be Kamala Harris, now vice president, that uh, forced uh, nonprofits to turn over sensitive information about donors. Uh, the court uh, handed you a ruling or uh, handed you a victory in this ruling. Yes, this was a big win for all Americans because we should all be free to support the causes that we believe in without fear of harassment or intimidation. And the problem is that when a state like California requires charities to disclose information about their donors, how much they've given and how they can be contacted and things like that, and then that information is leaked, whether that's on purpose or just inadvertently, then people can be harassed. They could be uh, solicited by other organizations or in some cases even threatened. Uh, my client, the Thomas More Law Center that Alliance Defending Freedom represented, had clients and employees who received hate mail and even assassination attempts. Uh, so you can immediately understand how critical it is that the Constitution protect the confidential information of supporters. And, John, this was uh, a case in which you had people both on the left and the right opposed to this California rule. So you had uh, an odd group of uh, um, individuals signing or uh, filing a friend of the court briefs in favor of overturning this law or this rule. Yeah, I've been practicing in the U.S. Supreme Court for about 15 years now, and I have never seen such broad support across the political spectrum, all on one side of a particular case, uh, whether you were conservative or liberal, progressive or libertarian, um, groups of every kind came out and supported this ruling because they all understood how crucial it is that Americans be free to support the organizations of their choice without recrimination. Now, John, uh, tell us a little bit about the reported leaks of this donor information to activists from the state attorney general's office in which this was used, as you said, to harass uh, donors and, and take other actions against them. Yeah, the, the trial in this matter, there were two of them, actually, one involving uh, Thomas More Law Center, one involving Americans for Prosperity Foundation, showed that the attorney general's office had placed thousands of confidential Schedule Bs on their website. Schedule Bs are the documents that you use to report information to the IRS about your top donors, uh, their confidential information and their donation amounts. Uh, the IRS does not put any of those things on a website and has strict criminal penalties if you would share that information or try to get it, even if you were outside the IRS. Uh, but in California, they had virtually no policies in place to punish anyone for disclosing this information. And the expert witness concluded that they leaked information like a sieve. Um, it, it was not difficult uh, for anyone to get. In fact, there were many documents that could be obtained simply by changing one digit on the URL address at the top of the website browser. Uh, so in light of all this, no one had any confidence that California was going to keep documents confidential in the future. And I, I think that was one of the many things that the court looked at in its overwhelming majority ruling in favor of freedom. Uh, on those leaks, do, do we know if that was accidental or was there evidence to suggest that it was intentional? Uh, there was no evidence at trial that it was intentional, although the Thomas More Law Center testified that uh, they certainly felt targeted with respect to having to disclose this information because uh, as a, a public interest law firm, defending religious liberty, free speech, and the right to life, they had views which were directly contrary to the policies that the California Attorney General's Office has consistently supported. Uh, but just to give you a, a sense of how broad the negligence was with respect to the documents being released, even Planned Parenthood um, had 
many, many pages of its confidential information inadvertently released on the attorney general's website. So, John, I would assume that other states will t- other states will take note of this ruling by the Supreme Court and that we should see uh, the protection of donor information from nonprofit nonprofit organizations uh, uniformly across the country. I would certainly think so. In fact, the vast majority of states uh, regulate charities and charitable fraud without any need for this information. California testified that it had never initiated a fraud investigation by using confidential donor information at the outset. Uh, so those few states that do this, uh, New York and uh, New Jersey and Hawaii being the others, I suspect that they're going to have to shut down their very similar practices. And what was great about the ruling that we received from the Supreme Court is that it invalidated the California policy, not only with respect to the two parties that were before it, but facially, which means that it applies to the more than 60,000 registered charities that solicit in California. So not only does it protect them, but it it protects 501c3s like the Family Research Council, uh, so that none of these organizations will be required required by California ever again to disclose confidential donor information. Oh, believe me, we've experienced uh, California and uh, and their rules. So we uh, we too are very, uh, very pleased with this outcome. John Birch, thanks so much for joining us today. And again, uh, great work on behalf of all of us. Thank you to the entire team at uh, Alliance Defending Freedom. Our pleasure. God bless. All right. Uh, great organization in in I tell you, the the groups, we all are on the wall together. You've got the legal groups, Alliance of Ending Freedom, First Liberty, Liberty Council, Pacific Justice. Uh, we all have our role to play. We're working on the policy and the communication part. They do the legal work in the courtrooms. Uh, prayerfully consider supporting organizations. Our, I was actually having this conversation this morning with Franklin Graham. Uh, Our freedoms are at risk in this country, and we have to defend them. All right, coming up next, a showdown between teachers and parents. Is it in the making? We'll talk about it. What is religious freedom, and why should you care about it, both domestically and internationally? By definition, religious freedom is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's choice and to live according to those beliefs. At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a harrowing reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to mount in many regions of the world. God calls Christians to care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To learn more about this issue and what you can do to help, go to frc.org slash IRF to check out Family Research Council's latest resources on international religious freedom. Christians are called to seek after the Lord above all things. This means we must pray unceasingly, vote our biblical values, and boldly stand for truth. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission every Wednesday as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to focus their attention on the Lord in every aspect of their lives. Pray, Vote, Stand will help equip you to stand for biblical truth in the midst of a confusing time in our culture. 
Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. This year, let's commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. To watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. Want honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world? Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch. You can listen to the show whenever it works for you. Go to TonyPerkins.com to stream episodes on demand or listen by radio through American Family and Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, or independent Christian radio stations across the country. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Mike Pompeo, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Sissy Graham Lynch, and more. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day by tuning into Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's TonyPerkins.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Hope you had a great uh, Fourth of July weekend. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Okay, uh, over 5,000 teachers have reportedly signed a petition pledging to push CRT, critical race theory, regardless of the laws that their jurisdictions may pass. Now, now wait a minute. I, I didn't think that uh, this was actually being taught in the schools. Now, you've heard this over and over. In fact, um, you know, when when this really this push from parents going to school board meetings and, and this outcry over critical race theory, you saw the media in lockstep with the left saying, oh, this isn't happening. It's, it's not happening. Uh, we're not teaching this in our schools. Um, here is uh, I want to play a clip for you. This is CB. SN, CBSN news anchor Tanya, uh, Tanya uh, Rivero, she's talking about how critical race theory is taught only at the graduate level. Play clip number seven. When we, we hear a lot about critical race studies right now, critical race theory, it's not something that is taught in schools. You know, that clears up a lot of confusion that people have over, you know, is critical race theory being taught to my fifth grader? The answer is no. (laughs) Critical race theory is an advanced topic that, you know, pretty much takes place at the graduate level. Uh, Again, that was Tanya Rivero. Also on MSNBC, Alicia Menendez, uh, she was guest hosting. She had uh, this to say about it as well. Critical race theory actually refers to the study of structural racism. And it's not taught until college or graduate school. Law school. It's a law school class, everybody. So let's start by making it completely crystal clear at the top of this interview that critical race theory is not taught before law school. It is a law school class, uh, essentially, or graduate level. So then why are teachers in K through 12 signing a petition 
that uh, over 5,000, it's a Zen Education Project petition that says they will continue to teach this divisive and uh, uh, really hateful curriculum, regardless of the law. And then last week, the nation's largest teachers union, about 2 million members, it's the Education Mafia, uh, they approved the plan to promote critical race theory in 14,000 school districts across America. And they pledged to oppose attempts to ban it from K through 12 social study classes. So how can you have it both ways? Joining me now to, to talk about this, Meg Kilgannon, education, uh, Senior Fellow for Education at the Family Research Council. Meg, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me, Tony. So, Meg, how can how can this how can this not be taught, but yet they're signing petitions pledging to teach it regardless of what the law may say? Right. It has sort of an empire strikes back feel to it, doesn't it? On the one hand, they say it's not happening. And then when they're caught red handed, they say, oh, yes, and we're going to teach it even more. We're going to make sure we teach it to all the children. So it, it's a classic um, liberal move. It, it's happening in education, but it's a it's a classic uh, technique that they use on lots of different issues. So to be clear, at the top of this interview, uh, critical race theory is happening in K through 12 schools across America. In fact, the National Education Association pledging to have it taught and promoted in 14,000 school districts across America. Yes, it absolutely is being taught in K-12 education. Um, as early as um, 2018 in Fairfax County, where I live, fourth graders were doing language arts studies, and they were supposed to interpret the readings that they did based on the uh, four Ps, and two of those Ps were privilege and power. So this is not anything new in school, and it doesn't limit itself to history, right? It, it is something that's taught throughout the curriculum, and it is a, it's a way of thinking. It's a philosophy that informs all of education, and it most certainly is in law school. It absolutely is in graduate school programs. It's in the graduate school programs that inform teachers, teach them how to be teachers, so, of course, they bring that philosophy with them into whatever classroom they enter, whether that is a kindergarten classroom, a middle school classroom, a high school classroom. They take this philosophy with them. Um, the, Meg, the I'm going to play, play a clip uh, from last, last Wednesday. Becky Pringle, who is the president of the National Education Association, as I mentioned, largest teachers union, largest union, actually, two million members. She delivers her her she delivered her first official address as president of the nation's largest union. And uh, she talks about her vision to reclaim public education and then transform it. Let's watch this. The vision I laid out to guide that work is that we, the NEA, will lead a movement that unites not just our members, but this entire nation to reclaim public education as a common good and then transform it into something it was never designed to be. A racially and socially just and equitable system that prepares 
every student, everyone, to succeed in a diverse and interdependent world, to be those leaders of a just society. All right, Meg, first question is, who are they going to reclaim it from? <laughs> that is a very good question, because I, I think they have a pretty tight grip on it as it is. I'm really surprised that, uh, that she feels like it has to be reclaimed, and I'm, I, I'm also, frankly, offended that she thinks our education system was never designed to be, uh, you know, something for all students. Of course it is. Public schools must teach Every student that comes through the door who is assigned to that school in a certain zip code, they have to teach those kids, no matter what their disability or ability is, no matter their race, creed, religion, or anything else. And to imply otherwise, I, I think is just not fair. Uh, it it kind of reminds me of uh, Barack Obama, uh, fundamentally transform. They want to transform education into something it was never intended to be. Um, are we looking at a massive showdown between the education mafia and parents across America? I, I think we are headed in that direction. It's happening already. The fact that we're talking about this in July when school is out um, is, is an indication that this is a topic that is not going to go away. Parents really saw that teachers unions like the National Education Association and the American Federation for Teachers were interested in serving their membership, which is teachers. And they were not necessarily interested in returning students to the classroom in the fall as the pandemic wanes. They were not interested in um, being declared essential workers and doing their part. I mean, I know kids who were working at Wegmans in the height of the pandemic while teachers were not going to school. So, you know, this is, they, they have shown their true colors now and they are in a situation where they do need to have a good offense because they, they have really lost a lot of credibility. And I think they believe they're going to get that credibility back by, um, you know, fomenting the issue of, of uh, division along race. And that is going to be a big mistake because parents are really tired of this. Um, America is not a fundamentally racist nation. Uh, Americans are not fundamentally racist people. Uh, that's why we believe in public education. And this is, this is, you know, just simply not a dog that's going to hunt this time. So I'm really excited about the energy that I'm seeing from parents. Uh, who are engaged, some for the first time, and some activists, like I've been an activist for a, a while now, and I have never seen this kind of energy before from parents. We've tried to warn them about different issues over the years, and it, it has been something that they just could not believe. They just simply would not accept the fact that the school could be so so opposed to their values and, and so blatantly hostile to their authority as parents. And for, you know, for better or worse, that's been demonstrated very clearly this year as, the, as all, everything around the pandemic unfolded, whether it was returning to school um, in person, whether it's this issue around critical race theory, and whether it is or is not taught in school. All of this 
is putting in clear relief the issue that parents face when it comes to the school systems and the very real lack of partnering with parents, shall we say, that occurs when we put the interests of teachers unions and politics ahead of the interests of children and families. Meg Kilgannon, you use the word blatant, and I want to go back to the petition that I mentioned at the beginning of the segment. The Zen Education Project, this is really named after Howard Zinn, who is a socialist in his book, A People's History of the United States. Talk a little bit about this petition that over 5,000 teachers have signed, because to me, this is blatant in the language. They're not even hiding it at all. They say that we pledge to teach the truth. We teach history so that one of the people said that we teach history so that we don't make the mistakes in the past, not to support the narrative that this is a nation that's made no mistakes. I don't think anybody is claiming that this is an issue that's made the nation that's made no mistakes. What we would like to do is focus on the fact that we are continuing to strive toward a more perfect union. And yes, there certainly have been situations that were terrible and unjust. And those things are rectified over time. You know, this isn't something that is a case where we have to continually focus on the flaws and pretend like there's been no progress made. Mary Graber wrote a book about the Howard Zinn book, the history book, and about Howard Zinn himself. It's a really wonderful book about the Zinn Education Project and this obsession that he had with revisionist history. And there are several pieces of postmodernism that inform our educational moment. This revisionist history, the critical race theory, then queer theory. These three things go hand in hand with this movement because they sow discontent, they sow division, they interrupt people's relationships with each other and the ability to form relationships with others. They attack religion, they attack the family. And these things are all very evident to the public right now, which is actually a very great blessing. And those are central to Marxist ideology and Marxist government. Just a couple more quotes from the petition. We, the undersigned educators, refuse to lie to young people about U.S. history and current events regardless of the law. They're basically saying we're going to violate the law regardless. We, the undersigned educators, will not be bullied. It goes on to read, we will continue our commitment to, and this I had to laugh at, we will continue our commitment to develop critical thinking. If anything, what they're doing is they're force-feeding children liberal ideology and propaganda. They're not teaching our children to critically think. No, they're teaching them what to think instead of how to think. One of my favorite quotes was, I will not whitewash our history. I will not allow the U.S. government to control our future generation's thoughts and inhibit their ability to critically analyze our history. The U.S. is an incredible nation with a past built upon stolen land and the blood of enslaved peoples, a legacy that lives with us today. You know, this idea of 
living on stolen land. Um, this draws a very clear line between cultural Marxism and economic Marxism. Because when you undermine people's thinking about whether or not someone has a right to own property, this is what leads to holding property in the collective and a collectivist mentality, which is a hallmark of Marxism, right? Of economic Marxism, of communism, of the kind of government and system that is in Cuba or in Venezuela or was in the Soviet Union. That is what the Howard Zinn Project is out to promote. And, 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 and that has led to mass executions and the, the murder of a lot of innocent people. Uh, in, the deadliest in the form of century. government on the planet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we're, we're just about out of time. Meg, very quickly, what can folks find? Where can folks find more information about what they can do? We don't want to just give them the problem. We want to give them the solution. Well, you can go to FRC.org and check out our education page. You can go to FRC Action. You can email us at schools at FRCaction.org or on our tip line at frc.org if you have examples of curriculum that you're concerned about. I would encourage uh, school systems who are considering teacher contracts for renewal in the fall, you might wanna take a glance at the signers of this document, see if your teacher has yeah. signed this petition. Because yeah, I good. think that should be a, a question that they should be asked. Are you going to obey the orders given to you by your superintendent and by your school board? Or are you going to do Meg, exactly we gotta, what you want? we got to leave it there, Meg. We're out of time. Folks, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to talk with you. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, prepared, and taken your stand, by all means. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1 866 372 7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.